presence of the Lord is in this place. Amen. Take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4. And we'll begin reading in verse 21. We have been in this, this will be the third sermon in this particular section, uh, talking about true worship, which is something that Jesus, when he encountered this woman at the well, obviously uh, thought was the most important, the most primary thing to talk about. Now, she raised the issue. Uh, you know, you Jews say we should worship in Jerusalem, and, and my uh, people say we worship in this mountain. Uh, who's right about that? And, and so Jesus takes that opportunity to kind of expand her limited understanding and to talk about what true worship is. And in verse 21, Jesus said to her this, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called the Christ. And when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. I who speak to you, I who stand before you, Am He, the one you're talking about, the one you're looking forward to, the one you're anticipating? It's an an amazing little exchange there by this well between Jesus and this Samaritan woman. We talked about all the taboos have been torn down just by the very conversation, just by the fact that that He would stop and ask her for a a drink of water. I mean, this was unheard of in His day. We, We know all that. We, we talked about what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit means to worship with sincerity, to worship with all of the heart. But sincere worship that is not directed toward the true object of worship is false worship. You can be sincere all you want to be, and you can be sincerely wrong. A lot of people this morning are worshiping or calling things worship that are misfocused, misguided, misunderstanding, and they can call it worship for as long as they live and as long as they have voices. But if it's not in truth, I don't care how spirited it is, I don't care how sincere it is, if it's not based on the truth and based on the true object of worship, then it's not worship. It might be entertainment, it might be enjoyable. It might be something that they feel good about, but if it's not in spirit and in truth, as we talked about, it is not real worship. I want us to think today a little bit more about the object of worship, though, that Jesus talks about here. The object of our worship, worshiping in truth, needs to, means we understand who or what the object of our worship is, and, and we have to look at that quite clearly. We need to understand that worship is the work of acknowledging the greatness of our covenant Lord. Worship is acknowledging the greatness of our covenant Lord. That is, worship is something that is active. I want you to know, if you came in here this morning and you kind of put your mind in neutral and you kind of put your heart in neutral and you listened as others sang and you just kind of existed in this place and you you kind of 
glanced around and, and you really didn't put anything into it or put yourself into it, then you haven't worshipped. Worship is not something you go to. Worship is something you do. Worship is not something that is passive, that you just kind of sit around and let other people around you do it, and maybe by osmosis you will attain some of it. Worship is a verb. Worship is active. Worship is work. Worship can sometimes be very difficult. But worship is the most significant, most valuable, most important thing you will ever do, bar none. It's more important than anything else this church does. And, and when I say that, I say that meaning, as we've talked about before, that it's most important because it is most primary. Is our work in the Chancai River Valley in Peru important? Absolutely it's important. It's obeying the commission and the command of Christ to go into all the world, and we're taking the gospel to Chancai River Valley. But if we're not worshiping Him here, if we're not acknowledging His greatness as a people, if our missions are not being energized by our worship, then our missions will be empty. Taking the gospel to Somerset, Kentucky through evangelism is a vital part of what we do, and it's an important part. But if we just go out and we don't go out after having worshipped and acknowledging who he is and really in spirit and truth lifting up his name in this place together, being equipped and, and being strengthened by that worship, then our, our witness will be empty and shallow. And in many cases, it will be non-existent. Worship is active. Worship is something we do. It's different from entertainment. It cannot be passive. You must participate for worship to really be worship. And worship is honoring someone who is superior to you. Uh, worship is, is honoring and acknowledging someone who is greater than you, who causes you to stand in awe. That's why, you know, my pet peeve about the word awesome, and, and you'll hear it a thousand times you're hanging around a week, you'll hear it a thousand times probably. But, but the word awesome is a word that really we ought to observe only for God. Because the word awesome means something causes us to pause and to worship. Awesome means that it's, it, something causes us to stand in awe, to, to literally quake in its presence because it is so much greater than we are. And there is no car, there is no hamburger, there is no pizza, there is nothing that is awesome in a true sense of the word. Only God is. Only our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is really worthy of that word. And so when we talk about worship, it's honoring someone who is superior or something that is superior. Therefore, worship is coming into a place not to please ourselves, but to please Him. It's coming into this place to say, what in my life can I do today, active, work, verb-wise, what can I do to please Him? What can I do to honor Him? What can I do to exalt His name? The Scripture is very clear that we are not to worship men. We are not to worship idols. We're not to worship animals. We're not to worship objects. We're, we're not to give anything or anyone that superior place of honor in our life except Him. I mean, that's why the, 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 the Ten Commandments began with a commandment against idols, with a commandment against false worship. Worship is vital, so vital, that, G, uh, that God made it the very first, the very beginning of His Ten Commandments. It deals with worship. It deals with idols. 
That's why I, I always wince just a little bit. Now, I'm, I'm, this is kind of an aside here, and if it's your favorite show, I don't mean to jump on it or anything. I have anything wrong with the show, but I hate the title every time I hear it. The show American Idol. I think it's more descriptive of our culture than it really ever intended to be. I think, I think why is it not America's greatest singer or America's greatest talent or, or whatever? I mean, it, it's American Idol. An idol gives the idea of something that is, is so good, so superior, that it deserves our attention, it deserves our worship, it deserves our standing in awe of it. And there's not to be anything that does that except God. When we ask the question, and, and we pastors and staff ask this all the time, when we ask the question, how can we make worship better? How can worship be made better? That has a focus that must be in one direction. It's not how do we make worship so it's more comfortable for you. How do we make worship so that you can leave here and say more and more, oh man, I really enjoyed that. That was really great today. That was a, a great worship experience. That's not how we seek to make worship better. The proper understanding of how to make worship better is not primarily for us or for ourselves, but how can we make it better as we seek to honor the one who is worthy of our worship? It may be that worship is better for him, and that will also make it better for us. But if it does that, we need to understand our betterment, our enjoyment, our getting something out of it is secondary to what worship is to be. Worship is to be focused on him. Now, Jesus, in this encounter says, I want you to understand, dear lady, and he wants us to understand it also, that, that a time is coming and is right now when it's not a matter of the mountain, it's not a matter of Jerusalem, uh, where you worship the Father, but you will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I indeed, that's what God is looking for, true worshipers who worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And I can hear some of your wheels turning in your mind already, it says worship the Father. Don't, do we commit a sin when we worship and say we worship the Lord Jesus Christ? Uh, is it not also proper to worship the Holy Spirit? We understand the Trinitarian truth of the Scripture. We understand the Trinitarian truth of the gospel, that God exists in Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But at this point, in this time, in his encounter with this woman, Jesus has not yet been glorified. He's not yet been seen fully as not only Messiah, but God incarnate. That won't come until he hangs on that cross and dies in our place and three days later rises from the dead as an expression of his glory and then ultimately ascends to the right hand of the Father that we understand and we see. Now, we have the benefit of being on this side of all that and seeing all of that, but this woman is still working this out. All they know about is worshiping the Father. But I think there's a... I think there's an implication here that our worship is still to be to the Father. That when we come into this place, our, our focus is to be to the one who is God the Father. Now, we do that by the power of the Holy Spirit, and we do that through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's gospel worship. We understand when Jesus said, no man comes to the Father but by me, he wasn't just talking about salvation, although he was talking about salvation. But he was also talking about everything we do. Our worship is not to the Father unless our worship comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no worship if Jesus is excluded. There is no worship if Jesus is, is ignored. 
Our worship is through the Christ who hung on that cross. Our worship is through his sacrificial atoning death. Our worship is of the Father who sent the Son, but our focus is on God the Father. Who is Father to you and me? Who Paul will say to the Ephesians, there is one God, there is one Father, there is one baptism of us all. He's talking to believers there. That's, that's not a teaching of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man, all the creation. He's talking about those who have a relationship with Christ. Know God as Father. Those who come to the Father through Jesus Christ, the Son, can worship Him in spirit and in truth because they know the one who is the truth. So you see, redemption is, redemption is a prerequisite for worship. Redemption, salvation, knowing Christ is a, is a prerequisite for really worshiping the Father. You may sing songs. You may even get warm fuzzies. But unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot know the Father. And unless you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot worship the Father in spirit and in truth because you've not come to know the truth. So primarily, worship is not for ourselves, but worship is for the one we seek to honor. We worship for His pleasure foremost, and we find our greatest pleasure in worshiping Him. The old statement that I've quoted for years with John Piper's, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in Him. When we recognize that our satisfaction, our pleasure comes from our relationship to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that our, our pleasure and our satisfaction comes not from what we can accumulate, not from what we can gain on this earth, but our real satisfaction, our real pleasure comes from knowing Him and walking with Him and fellowshipping with Him, then that is an understanding of what it means to glorify, worship, and honor the one that we are called to do. Therefore, worship must always be God-centered. It must always be Christ-centered. It must always be focused on our covenant Lord. Now, if you were here back during the spring for our systematic theology studies on Wednesday night, many of you were, as we studied this whole idea of who is God and what is God like, one of the things we talked about was an attribute of His that sort of is an umbrella attribute of all that he is, and that is his lordship, his covenant lordship. And, and that plays into our understanding of true worship. So if you were in those studies, you're going to get a little brief review here. If you weren't, you're going to get a preview of what I hope you'll get into next time we go through that particular section. But, but we need to understand that this idea of covenant lordship plays into our understanding of true worship. When you came to Christ, when you, as we talked about in some of our songs this morning, when you bowed down low, when you bent the knee and bowed down, as the psalmist calls us to do in worship, to bow low in the presence of the Lord, when you bowed the knee to Christ and acknowledged Him, you acknowledged Him as Lord. When you, when you acknowledge who God is, you acknowledge Him as Lord of the universe, Lord of all that there is. And, and when, you when you consciously understand that He is Lord, you come to an understanding that, that He has certain attributes under that that are important for us to understand for worship. There are three primarily. 
The first one is, in worship, we adore God's covenantal control. That is, we ignore His sovereign rule over all of His creation. If you go to the Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, and you find the words of of the people praising God, whether it's in the tabernacle or in the temple or whether it's in exile and in the dispersion, wherever you find Him, typically the praises of the people are for His mighty acts. His mighty acts in creation, as you will find in Exodus 1, uh, 15, 1 through 18, you'll find there uh, an expression of praising God for the mighty acts of creation, but also His acts of providence in bringing them out of Egypt, His providential care in, in taking them toward the, the promised land. Even though they're in Exodus, they're praising Him for His taking care of them in the middle of all that. And you'll find uh, praise of His people in, in, in the redemption that He has given to them in bringing them out of Egypt, bringing them out of slavery and taking them toward the promises. One of the things we do when we come to worship is is we thank God for His sovereignty. We thank God for His mighty deeds. We thank God for all that He's done. And we can do that by looking in Scripture and seeing that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them. We can do that by going to Scripture like we did in the first part of John. In the beginning was the Word, Jesus And the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and all things were made by Him, and apart from Him was not anything made that was made. John is very clear. So Jesus was there in the beginning of Genesis 1. Jesus is now being manifest in the flesh. He has come to live among us and show us the glory of the Father. I mean, as you listen to the Scripture, you hear many mighty deeds. You look at the plagues there in Egypt that God used to bring his people out of Egypt and toward the promised land, wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. But, but nonetheless, he used those mighty deeds, those mighty acts, turning the Nile into blood, turning the, the, the locusts, bringing the, the hordes of locusts, and, and then the death of the first one, over and over. You see, mighty deeds of our God to bring about his purpose. But think in your own life. Are there not mighty deeds in your own life? That when you come to worship, you can worship our covenant Lord's sovereignty and power and covenantal covenantal control about bringing you to faith in Christ. His Holy Spirit moving in your life and, and bringing conviction of your own sin and showing you the need for a Savior. I mean, does that not cause you in one sense to say, Lord, for that act of your salvation, I give you thanks? There's some sitting here this morning who have gone through very trying, difficult times. Cancer, heart attacks, uh, multiple illnesses that most people, human people, just were ready to give up on you and say, there's no hope. Is there not a mighty act of God that brought you through that by His healing hand to, to deliver you back? Is there not a mighty deed that you can worship Him for? We come and we worship Him. We adore Him for His covenantal control, for His care and His sovereignty over all of His creation and over our lives. That's the first thing. The the second thing in worshiping the covenant Lord and seeing Him for all that He is, is to worship God is also to bow before His absolute and ultimate authority. To bow before His authority. If he is Lord, L-O-R-D, and that's the way Scripture describes him, 
from the beginning of the Bible all the way to the end of the Bible, that word is used over and over and over again, does that not mean that he carries with him a, a, an ultimate and complete authority over everything, including your life and my life? Does that not mean that he is the absolute authority to which we are to listen, to which we are to look to, to which we are to believe, and to which we are to submit in our time of worship? Absolutely, that's what it means. We, we come to worship him and to bow before his covenantal authority. I, I love the way David put it. The psalmist put it in Psalm 19. If you want to turn there, you can, or you can just listen. You know this psalm. We've looked at this psalm. The psalm, psalm 19 is, the, is sort of a condensation of Psalm 119, which is, a much, is the longest chapter in all the Bible. But in Psalm 119, David spends the first six verses or so talking about the wondrous deeds of God's in acts of creation and providence. He said, the heavens are telling the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard by the masses. Their, their line is going out through all the earth, and their utterances to the end of the world. In them he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run its course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens, and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. David says, listen, you want to worship God? Worship him because of his mighty deeds of creation and providence. Worship him because his creation is screaming out his glory. His creation is declaring his mighty power and his mighty deeds. But then in verses 7 through 14, or really 7 through 11, he talks about the perfection of God's word. And this is his authority. His power, his creation is 1 through 6, 7 through 11 is his his authority. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold. They are sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. David says, I want you to see the absolute and ultimate authority of God, not just in his creation, not just in his mighty deeds, but also in his words. That's why when we enter this place for worship, the preponderance of what we do is focused on the word. We have a scriptural call to worship. We have a reading of God's Word in the middle of the service, sometimes two or three times, today only once. And, and then we have the exposition of the Word, to look at the Word and what God has said, even in this little encounter with a Samaritan woman, talking about worship and what it is. The focus is to be on his word. As we enter into his presence, we become overwhelmed by his majesty and power. And if we are, how can we ignore what he is saying to us? And so just as Paul said to Timothy in, in 1 Timothy 4.13, he said, don't neglect the reading and the teaching of the word. When you gather together there at Ephesus with that congregation, Paul said to Timothy, read the word, 
Teach the word. Proclaim the word. That's why in that early church in Acts, in Acts chapter 2, you find what the early church was committed to. It says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to prayer and to the breaking of bread and to fellowship with one another. There was this worship, but the focus at the beginning was on the apostles' teaching. And what was the apostles' teaching? Primarily, it was the exposition and the expounding of what we call the Old Covenant, the Old Law, uh, the Old Testament. And, and now we understand we have the, the apostles' teaching in word form through the writings of John and Matthew and Luke and Peter and others and Paul. They're God's Word. So when we come, we read and we expound the Scriptures because that's where we hear the Lord. That's where He speaks. Oh, His Holy Spirit energizes the Word. But my friend, don't ever forget, God's primary way of speaking to you and me is not through a little small voice somewhere that you say, oh, that must be God, but it's through His inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word. And if you believe God is saying something to you and it contradicts this word or goes against this word, let me tell you something, run from it because God will never contradict by his Holy Spirit what he has written by his Holy Spirit in his word. And so worship, and worship involves hearing his word. And, and God says, I don't want you just to be hearers of the word, but I want you to be doers of the word. Romans chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, but we are not just hearers of the law, but if you want to be justified, you've got to be a doer of the law. Now, he's talking there about the reality that you can't be a full doer of the word. It's going to take justification by faith in Christ alone to make you right with God. But he said, listen, if the law is God's word, you must not just hear it, but you must focus on doing it, even recognizing that you won't be able to. Or, or James, in his little epistle, when he said, for we are not to be hearers of the word only, but we are to be doers of the word. So we come and we worship and we hear God's word. And then our worship continues outside of these four walls when we go out those doors and back into the community. And we take what God has spoken through his word and through his truth and we do it. We live it. Not perfectly. Not without stumbling. Not without struggling sometimes. But we seek to be doers of what God has taught us as we've worshipped Him and gathered around His Word. So we worship Him because of His covenant power, His mighty deeds, His sovereignty. We worship Him and bow before His absolute and ultimate authority. If you claim the name of Christ, He is your Lord, period. He is the one who is to direct your life through His Word period. He is the one that you are to pursue, to know more than anything else, period. If you are a Christian, He is your Lord. And thirdly, not only His mighty deeds, not only His sovereignty, not only His authority, but in worship we experience God's presence. As a covenant Lord, He comes to us in worship to be with us. You know, one of the things I hear most often by people who come and they leave here and, and it, it just it thrills my heart is they say, you know, we, we sense the presence of God here. We sense the presence of the Lord. It's not just through friendliness. It's not just through smiles. It's not just 
because of the singing of the sermon, but, but we just sense the presence of the Lord. As I said earlier, he said in, in the Psalms, he said, I inhabit the praises of my people. He, he said through Zephaniah, he said, the worshiper shouts with joy that God is in the midst of his people. God dwells among his people. And no clearer, no more beautifully than when his people gather in corporate worship. That's why corporate worship is important. Individual worship is important also. But there's something unique, there's something special about sensing God's presence when we come together. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, the presence of God is to even impress the unbelieving visitor. That's what Paul said to the Corinthian Christians in in 1 Corinthians 14, 25. He said, you know, it, it may be if your focus is on Christ, if your focus is on our covenant Lord, if your focus is on glorifying God, and you're, you're not focusing on one another, you're not focusing on yourself, you're not focusing on, well, what can I get out of this? But you're focusing on giving to God, actively worshiping God. Paul says it might even be that the unbeliever in your presence will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Wow. In other words, that's an expression. If he falls down and worships and declares that God is really among them, that probably the unbeliever became a believer. Not because of methods, not because of trickery, but simply because the unbeliever sensed the presence of the living God. When we worship, God draws near. We experience His covenant presence in a very special way. Therefore, therefore, true worship that Jesus is talking about to this woman in, in John 4, true worship, the hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth For such people, the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is seeking these worshipers. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. True worship is saturated with reminders of God's covenant lordship. We worship to honor His mighty acts. We worship to hear His authoritative word. And we worship to fellowship with Him personally, intimately, as the one who has made us His people, the one who has brought us into His presence, the great one of whom the Scripture speaks, but God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Him, alive together with Christ, but God has done a work to draw us together and make us His people. We who were not a people have been made the people of God. We who did not have a God, He has become our God. We fellowship with Him personally. And in fellowshiping with Him in worship, we we have have a spiritual fellowship with one another that's centered on what is really and truly important. When we are distracted from our covenant Lord, And when we are preoccupied with our own comforts and pleasures, something has seriously gone wrong with your worship. It really has. If there has to be a certain style or a certain time or, you know, something, then something's wrong. 
you know, we've been here an hour and five minutes now. If that's bothering you, there's something wrong. Because if your focus is on him, it can't be on a watch. Now, I know I called your attention to it, and I'm sorry about that. That's my sin. But I want you to think about that. If our focus is on God, time sort of becomes irrelevant, doesn't it? If our focus is on His glory and His truth and His greatness, then it's not about, oh man, we got to get this over with because I came here to get an hour of worship and I've got an hour in now, I'm done, I want to get out of here. That's not the focus. Focus is on Him. Focus is on the glory of, the, of, of God who gave us life. Focus is on the one who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Focus on the one who said, you are a sinner and you are under condemnation of death and hell, but by his grace said, I cover you in the righteousness of my son, Jesus Christ. You don't have any righteousness of your own, but I give you his righteousness. I impute that righteousness to you, and now you stand alive and covered and alive to me, able to worship me, able to focus on me, able to exalt me, able to exalt in my presence, able to glory in the presence of God. I mean, that's the one we are to focus on. Who sent his only begotten son in the world to go to a horrible instrument of death, a cross, and to be the perfect lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice, the perfect atoning propitiation propitiatory sacrifice. Hang there in my place. To hang there in your place. To take upon himself the sin of you if you're a believer. To take upon himself your sin and to bear it there. And in that moment to cry out with a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he experienced the wrath of God on not his sin, because he had none, but on your sin and my sin. It was such a horrible experience. Suffering the hell of what we deserved in that moment of death. And not just taking on our sin, but exchanging our sin for his righteousness. Wow. Paul says it best when he said, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we who have no righteousness might become the very righteousness of God. I don't know about you, but that kind of sends chills down my back kind of makes me want to worship, kind of makes me want to focus on what's really important when I'm in worship, makes me want to bow down, makes me want to cry out, Lord, you are awesome. That hamburger, it's okay. That car, it's nice. That singer, he or she's pretty good. When compared to the greatness of our covenant Lord, they're nothing. 
compared to the greatness of the God who gives life, they are nothing. We worship his mighty acts. We hear his authoritative word. And we sense his presence and fellowship with him who has by his grace and for his glory made us his people. Let's pray together. Let me ask you as you're praying, what are the mighty deeds that you want to just thank God for right now? That you want to just worship Him for? Think about that. What are the things that you remember out of Scripture or what are the things that you've seen in your own life that make you just want to cry out, Lord, to you be the glory, to you be praise. What is it in His Word, His authoritative Word? What is it under His authority that He's saying in your life distracts from worship of me? Is there an idol? Is there something that is more important to you than your worship of the living God through Jesus Christ? Is there something that is an idol there? As you worship him for his mighty acts, would you say, Lord, crush that idol in my life? That's that's a strong thing to pray for. And would you just simply say, Lord, draw near to me in your presence. Draw near to me by your power. Draw near to me as my authoritative Lord and take your word and Lord, help me be a doer, not a hearer only. We have to hear to do, but not a hearer only. Father, we bow in your presence. And even as we will acknowledge in a moment through singing our hymn of commitment, you are all to us. You are everything. Lord, let that be sung with truth of heart. Let that be sung with worship. Lord, I pray if there be someone here that doesn't know you, that they would sense your presence in this place in such a glorious way that they would fall down and say, I need Christ. And they would trust you today and repent today of their sin and disobedience. Lord, see you draw near to them in all your glory. Thank you, Father. Speak to us by your Spirit, through your Word. For this is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.